You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast, your guide to the climbing community. In this episode, we sit down with head Yosemite climbing ranger, Jesse McGahey, to talk about the state of Yosemite climbing. We dig into what a climbing ranger's job is like on a daily basis, and the knowledge Yosemite climbers should know that could prevent many accidents. We discuss the new splitter near Superslide, as well as the need for and initial success of the big wall permit. We also cover an evolving conversation around style on Alcap and other classic big walls in the park, camping and parking issues, and so much more. Yosemite climbing has been such an inspiration for the climbing world, but in its current iteration, that experience is at risk. The AAC is excited to be partnering with Yosemite National Park to preserve that climbing experience for climbing generations to come. Learn more about these challenges to Yosemite and how we will be partnering with the climbing rangers in this episode. I'm your host, Hannah Provo. Here's the beta. Presented by Adidas Terex, a global leader in the outdoor sporting goods industry. With the mission to enable all humans to live a more connected, conscious, and adventurous life, Adidas Terex combines high-performance technologies with fashion-forward designs to weather the forces of nature and inspire every human being to find their own summits. Since 1981, Outdoor Research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at outdoorresearch.com. Okay, welcome Jesse to the podcast. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Thank you, Hannah. I'm Jesse McGahey. I am uh, the supervisory climbing ranger here in Yosemite National Park. I have been a climber since the mid-90s, and I came out here as a a climber my first time to Yosemite, and uh, that's a whole nother story. Everybody has their their story of how they they first visited Yosemite Valley and and Yosemite National Park as a climber, and uh, mine's a a pretty funny one, but we, we won't get into that right now. But yeah, I started working for the Park Service in 2004 and became a climbing ranger initially in 2006 and a law enforcement ranger in 2007. Been a climbing ranger mostly throughout my career. I spent five years doing other work as a, the SAR coordinator in Tuolumne Meadows for a year as a front country law enforcement ranger and then did that for three years in Yosemite Valley as well as a front country law enforcement ranger and SAR coordinator for the supervising the, uh, the SAR team there in Camp 4. Yeah. So can you tell us more about that? What's it like to be a climbing ranger in Yosemite? Like walk me through what the typical week is like. Uh, I think 
a lot of people, you know, a lot of climbers, their gut reaction might be, oh, that's a dream job. But what are some yeah. pros and some, you know, there's got to be some cons. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I, I struggle with uh, trying to defend it as, uh, you know, this is work. This is, it's a lot of, a lot of hard work, trail work, you know, talking to thousands and thousands of visitors all the time about climbing. But overall, it is a, it is a dream job. We all love it. And uh, um, I get a lot of climbing rangers that, that come back year after year, but they do struggle with it because just like if you're guiding, if you're a mountain guide, sometimes you, you mix your, your work life with uh, the activity and, you know, the things that you love to do on your own time. And it, it, it kind of gives you a, a little kind of sense of confinement. So I know uh, some of the rangers struggle with that because you're always in the public I, even if you're on your time off, people are always asking you about Yosemite policies and, and, uh, telling you about so-and-so doing this or that, or telling you that, you know, Yosemite could do this better. But overall, a lot of that stuff, uh, you just learn how to kind of deal with it in a way that, that is positive for, for both, both work and personal climbing and, and personal life, or you don't, and you move on to something else. But yeah, so the, to get back to the original question, that it varies for, for the different types of uh, climbing rangers we have. So myself and uh, one of the other climbing rangers are um, law enforcement rangers as well. And uh, so we have some other duties that we have to do. But for most of the staff and, and uh, myself and the other LE ranger, Cam, as well, our typical week involves talking to the public, both climbing and general public about climbing. We have the Ask a Climber program that is daily from from uh, 12.30 till 4.30, and that's out at El Capitan. And um, we talk about big wall climbing to the general public and for, for climbers um, out there with a couple of telescopes. And uh, we also, you know, show them gear and portal edges and, and mechanical advantage systems and things like that. And then it's also an opportunity for uh, for climbers to come up and and uh, talk to us, get climbing permits for for overnight climbing, see what condition route conditions are on the various big wall routes, not just cell cap. But yeah, then we also have uh, office hours that are scheduled in to talk to climbers at our offices in Yosemite Village, and uh, that's on most days. Um, we also have a climber coffee, which is another climbing specific outreach event that is really community oriented. We get a lot of people that come there almost every Sunday. <laughs> people joke like, oh, this church, we got to come out and have our, our coffee communion and uh, talk about all the things that happened that week, whether it's a, a rescue or a fatality, if, sadly, if that happens, or uh, you know some of the, the wildlife issues that are happening on the walls with bears or peregrine falcon closures or uh, um, we're, we're studying bats in Yosemite right now. We're working with a wildlife group up on the walls to monitor uh, um, for bats and there's you know about 13 species of bats in in Yosemite and uh, a lot of them roost up in the cracks on in uh, on the big walls and so we're we're observing where they where they are and and uh, where they might be and just to, to get an overall kind of picture of, of what that looks like so yeah we'll we'll talk to community about things like that at, at Climber Coffee. And then um, we do get to climb on the clock a lot. A lot of us, uh, that's our favorite part of the job, of course. So, you know, two to three times every pay period. So 
one or two times a week or we might do a, you know a big wall patrol like this this coming week in the week we have a, a couple of climbing rangers that are doing a patrol of zodiac so in in the season in the big wall season we'll have people doing overnight patrols but um we've also started like a, a uh, one of our climbing rangers allison has started a women's bouldering meetup after climbing co- climber coffee which is kind of a an event for for women or our uh, non non-men put it that way and uh they it's a informal event to you know have a safe space and empower women to to uh go for it and support each other and that so we we're doing a lot of different things planning for the facelift for example is a big big team effort and we do a lot of projects together with uh volunteers and some some athletes from like black diamond and north face as well um and then we'll Right now, we're also planning for the American Alpine Club's Kraken uh, Classic in Bishop. So we'll we'll have a uh, a table in there and hopefully uh, be a part of a stewardship project as well. So we're consistently having something going on for, for outreach and education. We consistently get out there to help build climbing trails and restore them, delineate them, consistently talk to the, the, uh, the general public about climbing and what that means. And then uh, we're also the policy and climbing management entity for Yosemite. So, you know, our relationships with American Alpine Club and Access Fund, the superintendent's office, Yosemite Climbing Association, we're consistently like meeting up with them and and uh, having dialogue to for things that are happening right now and then for things that are happening in the future. Yeah. So I have so many follow up questions on <laughs> kind of. Side note, which isn't even a follow-up question, but you're, you started with Ask a Climber and talking to the public, like looking right. at these massive big walls as they see people scaling them. And I'm just like, wow. So the rest of the climbing community needs the like the beta on how to talk to non-climbers. Like we've been wondering <laughs> this entire time, how do you tell your parents what you do? <laughs> and like, I think you guys have the answer. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, the funny thing is, is a lot of climbers love to come out and and hang out there, which you wouldn't think would happen normally. But climbers actually, you know, a lot of climbers love to tell their stories and Mm. they like to be understood. And uh, so you, you, we have a lot of folks that come out and they'll be there to, to check out their buddies that are climbing Zodiac because we have the the telescopes that are out there. And then they realize, hey, this is kind of fun. You get to like meet people and see, see folks. And there's there's people that come from all over the country and all over the world. And they see this program and talk to the climbing rangers and other climbers. And they tell us and they write to us in their comments that this was, that was the most impactful special experience they had in Yosemite. That and some of them are like, oh, we were here for four days. We ended up going to Yosemite Mountain Guides and getting, you know, our first climbing experience outside with the guides there because we were so interested in it and getting exposed to, to our program, which is a, we definitely weave in stewardship and leave no trace ethics from the get go. That is like part of our spiel for sure is talking about, yes, we're up there doing it, but people are going starting from the ground. They're taking everything with them that they need. They're self-sufficient and they take everything down at the end, including their human waste, which is kind of mind blowing for people. They're like, wait, they go to the bathroom in bags and they carry that out with them. So it is 
it is a good opportunity to like kind of show our best selves and our be best side. But you would immediately guess if you're staring at El Capitan and you are coming from anywhere else in the world, what would be the the first question that that people you would think that the tourists would ask? Oh, I'm I'm sure it's about like are they free soloing or something like that? Like, or some confusion about free climbing, aid climbing, free soloing. That That's definitely one of them. Are, are it's, uh, they literally asked this, where did Alex climb? They're like, like Alex is like <laughs> their buddy. Which, who, can you point out where Alex climbed? And so we actually have that as one of our like frequently asked questions that we, for the, the new climbing steward um, volunteers, because that, that's a whole nother part of the program I forgot to mention, which is the critical part is we have a six month like seasonal volunteer program that is split up in, in chunks of like two to three months or four months. Every now and then people stay for the whole season, but that's a volunteer climber stewards that live and work in the park and basically do all the things that climbing rangers do. A little bit less hours and a little bit less uh, formalized, but they they help us in all the things that we do and uh, come from all all backgrounds. Some of them are really experienced climbers that have been here forever and taking a sabbatical from their lives and their families. They might be fathers or mothers back home, and then some of them are are new, pretty new to climbing, and uh, you know treat it more like an internship. But yeah, that that's one of our <laughs> our little when they come here, we have the the ask a climber frequently asked questions and where did Alex climb is, is one of those initial questions. And it's just so funny that the first name basis thing, I, I, ha I haven't quite figured that out. It's like, uh, you know, maybe if you were talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger as a bodybuilder back in the day, or like how much can Arnold lift? You know, <laughs> it's the same kind <laughs> of thing. It's just funny. Okay. So I was also wondering, does the seasonality like affect the work so basically is september october when the temps for climbing are the best change what you're doing mm -hmm. in terms of work oh yeah that's a great question so yeah and that may and june especially may sometimes even april are good temps um a lot of times the springtime is a little wet wetter so there's certain routes that that uh stay a little wet before so may becomes a in general, a high season, and then depending on the year, June, June, it can be pretty busy still in Yosemite Valley. But just as it starts getting really hot in Yosemite Valley, it starts getting really nice in Tuolumne Meadows. And a lot of people don't realize you're like, oh, the climbing rangers in Yosemite aren't just Yosemite Valley specific. They they go elsewhere in the park. And uh, yeah, Tuolumne and the backcountry, the high country is all part of our domain as well any anywhere there's climbing in yosemite national park we are out there patrolling and we are out there uh doing conservation preservation work and so we we move our our team up to tuolumne meadows and um you know cathedral peak which is uh you know a six pitch six pitch route five six one of the the most classic alpine routes in the country i would say for for a uh, a rock climbing route relatively really good rock um it is extremely busy it'll have up to you know 50 climbs a day maybe even more than that up to 60 wow. 65 70 even sometimes and uh so we we get up there a bunch because there's a lot of issues with that much use you can imagine there's a lot of issues just in my time here there's been i would say a minimum of three fatalities that are associated with cathedral peak and then a lot of other you know food storage bear issues marmot issues, people bringing their dogs up there, crowding, but we had to do a huge, uh, over a half million dollar 
trail project because it was in the alpine environment, all the braided trails and everything were destroying um, the habitat up there and the vegetation. So we have spent years and years delineating and solidifying a single route that as approaches the route and descends the route, um, which is amazingly good now. Like it, it looks, it looks great. Every year we, we do a little restoration on it. Some people refer to it as the golden staircase because you have to do a lot of rock work it, when it's that steep. But previously people were like, what do you even do in the alpine environment when the, when you have the loose scree and sand? And I don't know if there's anything we can do about it other than cutting the numbers down tremendously. But we were able to, to uh, you know, with the help of Yosemite's trail crew and our, our uh, professional climbing rangers that, that have a lot of trails backgrounds, we were able to, to actually do something really good up there. But yeah, that's just an example of something we do in the in the middle of the summer. And yeah, we do stop the Ask a Climber program because climbers aren't on the wall in July and August. Mostly it's it's really hot <laughs> and uh, it's hot for the, the climbing rangers sitting out there in the meadow. And, you know, if the visitors came came through, they might look up there and be like, what are you looking at? I I don't know. <laughs> There's enough, the, the wall, <laughs> the granite. No, which is really beautiful to look at, but but it's not as fun as if there's actually climbers to, to look at. And I have to say, I wanted to just take a take a quick chance to give American Alpine Club a big shout out for supporting the Ask a Climber program. I know in the past several years they've g- given a large chunk of money to Yosemite Conservancy, which uh, is where the the grant that pays for our climbing ranger staff and the climbing stewards to uh, fund that program and, and staff that program and. AAC has has really assisted and helped us uh, keep that program going. So thank you guys. Yeah, of course. Okay, so one last follow up question: If you had to pick, what would be your favorite part of your job, and what's your least favorite part of your job? Okay, so my favorite part of my job is watching the climbing rangers come together as a team and work cohesively on similar missions and seeing them all want um and us all want so much to protect this wilderness together and to encourage everybody else to not only love the sport and love the process of the sport but love the location and learn more about um the wilderness and and learn more about what it means to kind of pass through wilderness and and to be a good steward at the same time that you're having um, these just life-changing experiences and, and putting that all together. And, and so, yeah, I, I just love hearing the passion come from folks. And I, I love, uh, watching the community get built in like Sunday, day before yesterday, I'm up at Climber Coffee and we have, you know, 50 or so people. And most of those faces are, are people that you have seen you know, year after year or season after season. And that community is so powerful. And there's, you know, like a, a 50 person group hacky sack basically that, that might happen. And everybody is kind of, is, is really supporting each other and regardless of, of what background or what, what climbing difficulty, um, people are, are climbing. It has just become this extremely supportive culture that, works on on common goals so that's that's my favorite part of the job is is seeing that process unfold and seeing like you know the arc of of climbing bending towards um greater stewardship and a feeling of more preservation and and more uh equal access for for all all groups so that's 
that is uh, my favorite part of the job for sure. Do you have a least favorite part or is that too hard of a question? No, it's not a, it's not a difficult question in terms of like, I know what my least favorite part of the job is. And I've, I've, like I said, I've started being a climbing ranger in 2006 and started doing uh, rescue work a little bit here and there in 2004, but I've done more and more of this. And since, since I've been here in the last 20 years, we've had over 40 fatalities of, of climbers. And, uh, that is 40 people for 40 human beings from all walks and all backgrounds. And yeah, I've had to personally put a lot of those people into body bags and talk to their families and do the work to, to bring them home. And yeah, that is extremely difficult, not because of the act, the actual like access and, and doing the job, but just like having to like, think about how that would affect you if one of your best friends or your climbing partner or your wife or your husband didn't come home because of uh, that and and kind of just realizing how much how much pain and, and sorrow and, and grief goes goes into that and some of those folks have been people I know um, that have worked here as SAR siders are have uh, been here for years and uh, yeah that it never gets easy and to see you know the rest of the team also you know so many people our climbing community is relatively small and almost always there's somebody around that knows that person or knows of them and it's it's just uh it's really sad like covid hit here in yosemite just like everywhere else guess how many people died of covid in yosemite zero <laughs> and during that time in the last few years we've had five climber fatalities and so in my opinion that's that's an epidemic you know if you look at our our community and how small our population is and how many people die doing the sport it's serious and so you know we're we're trying our best to to figure out ways to get out messages to to uh, further prevent more accidents more fatalities um, Pete over with Takeda with uh you know the accidents in North American climbing we've worked with him in the last couple of years we've worked with uh Yosemite Conservancy putting out staying alive in Yosemite video series with Tommy Caldwell and Emily Harrington and Beth Rodden. And uh, I, I really hope that there's more that we can do together, the, the club and, and uh, other entities, park service to, to really kind of get the message out there. There's, there's a few things that are unavoidable. We, this year, for example, we've had several rescues, half dozen rescues and, one fatality, all dealing with that loose rock. So human-caused rock fall that is uh, en route. Several of them were actually en route, so things change over a heavy winter like we've had. And things that were solid once are are kind of solid, questionable once, but have finally decided to dislodge. And that's been the source of a lot of those accidents. And that's kind of verging into the difficult-to-prevent type of accidents, but even just general awareness that, that even though that rock looks like it's microwave size block, that's only three inches thick, that could kill you or your partner or the small thing. So just a heightened vigilance around, uh, things that are potentially look loose. You 
Um, you see all the the chalked X's on on climbing routes, and and sometimes that's kind of annoying. You're like, ah, oh, that's just a. But I do think that that's a somebody is taking the time to be like, hey, heads up, don't pull this off on your head. And not that I'm gonna like advise for everybody to like tape off holds and things like that. It's just another thing to to be aware of. And then, but over half of the fatalities we've had in Yosemite in the the last twenty years actually probably longer than that i'd say it's 60 to 70 percent of all the fatalities in yosemite's climbing history were due to straight up human error and uh mm. mostly in the belay chain which when i say belay chain i think of like okay how you belay your partner how you transition to repel and how how you repel and uh maybe most of most of those are on the like descending repelling side of things a lot of them are like people wrapping off the end of the rope are not loading their ATC correctly, are uh, you know choosing the wrong wrong rope to to rappel on that doesn't have a knot on its end, like not not actually uh, transitioning correctly from climbing to to rappelling. So that a lot of those are are the the fatalities that we're seeing happening are the things that you would learn if you took a climbing course, a beginner climbing course, and it was like a, a one week long course. Everything that you would would need if it was a good course everything you would need to like prevent those fatalities you'd learn in those first few days so one of the things that i hear most often about that those accidents is that oh it must have been somebody that was new didn't know what they're doing or uh you know gym climber just you know just a lot of like oh writing it off that would never happen to me but the actuality and what actually happens is it's more more often than not it's somebody more experienced and so it's complacency that is that is happening and fatigue and a lack of a buddy check. That's something that that I've really realized is a huge part of it. Like if you when you start climbing, if you're cragging or you're doing a multi pitch climb, what do you do at the base? You know, you you look at each other and you're like, My knot's good, I'm on belay, I'm locked, I'm loaded, everything's good. You do your buddy checks, climbing, climb on, and then what do you do when you're descending? First person, sometimes uh, your buddy can will check you when you're getting on rappel, but a lot of times they don't even look at it. You know, you're just setting up your rappel and you don't do a buddy check. And then the second person is alone up there. And a lot of times when people descend off of a really long route, it's night. And so it's dark and that's been a contributing factor a lot. And so what we're advocating a lot is actually a pre-rigged uh, rappelling system where your, your partner pre-rigs above you you know guides do it all the time and uh that way if you both get on rappel simultaneously on a multi-pitch rappel you know we we encourage people to extend their rappels too in that so it makes it even that much easier to to do the pre-rig but yeah then then you can both buddy check each other off off of every um rappel station you're like okay we're good we're good anchor's good this is the way um you know this is what the deal is with knots, so we're not going to pull our knot into the anchor, things like that. And uh, I, it, it once once you get used to that method, it actually is just as fast, as probably faster, because you're are as soon as the person gives you any slack, you can start repelling. You can you can take off your tethers as soon. You know, there's a lot of things that that make it even more efficient, and you get a, a buddy check. So the, those are the kinds of things that we're really trying to advocate to to help people not have 
those re- those type of accidents. And in the last couple of years, we we haven't had uh, a rappelling related uh, accident just in the last two years. That that's not a lot of data, <laughs> but <laughs> right. So I'm I'm hopeful though that people can will continue to take this that part of climbing way more seriously because um, you know it's a really sad thing and it's a very long winded answer of my least favorite part of the job, but it has potential to be my favorite part of the job if we can turn things around. You're like, hey. Look at this. Look how much better we are about our our safety now. Yeah. Well, thank you for all the detail there. Like I know that I've talked to a number of like search and rescue um, professionals in or volunteers in other scenarios. And I know that like that is such a tricky space to be navigating. Yeah. But it also leads me into, I think, kind of the meat of our conversation that I want to have. And that's just like to start to frame this. The AEC and Yosemite National Park have recently signed a general agreement a legally binding document to partner together to provide the public with a, quote, better managed climbing program in Yosemite through education, outreach, restoration projects, and monitoring of climbing routes and approach trails. So this partnership is in large part because the AAC can contribute, like we have a big audience, and we can help blast the reach of your closures, the education you're just talking about, stewardship policies to a huge audience. That means a ton of different things, and I hope we get to like explore some examples because what I, the definition I just said was pretty big, right? But here's one example that's like super relevant. Yeah. I, I've heard that there's a new 200 foot splitter crack near Superslide. Like, <laughs> what should people know about the safety around this area, right? People are like, oh, new splitter, let's do it. But yeah. like, you guys are monitoring this space. That's what I'm saying. Tell me about it. Yeah. So that that is a great example of like getting the word out and getting the correct information out to the public. So, yeah, the geology here in Yosemite is. It looks like it's this fixed thing that has been the same way for tens of thousands of years. But uh, yeah, there's there's still geologic activity that is happening that is more than just like some loose rocks. You know, things things change from weather conditions and a lot of other myriad factors, whether it's seismic activity or, or other things. And I've, <laughs> one of the questions that I got asked about that, that splitter is just a side note. The Climbing Magazine asked me the question, what causes that type of cracking to happen? So I asked the geologist, park geologist, Greg Stock, who's super smart, knows, you know, more about, you know, rockfall and, and grant, you know, Sierra granite than anybody else in the world. He is just so well-versed and he's also humble enough and knowledgeable enough to say, we don't really know exactly what would cause <laughs> a 100, 200 foot crack to spontaneously occur. He'll say, yeah, we have a lot of theories, but there's there's nothing conclusive about what would what would cause that type of action to happen in the middle of summer. And uh, that's that's just a hard response for anybody to be like, ah, come on, you can we we can have more than that more conjecture. (laughs) So yeah, that that happened, and uh, from a very very reliable source, it was a a, a guide, uh, a Yosemite Mountain School guide that guides Superslide all the time, which is a route just to the right of this new crack, and he guided it on August sixth or so. He said, and it looked the same as normal. You actually ra- rappel over the area with the new crack, and on August twentieth, he guided it again, and he's like, oh, ta-da, <laughs> magic. There's a new, you know, <laughs> finger crack to like, you know, rattly finger splitter that's 150 feet long. That looks amazing. And so he told us about it. 
we put up a little warning, but we didn't actually close it because we didn't really know what to do. He went up and climbed it and a couple other people climbed it. It's 5'10", amazing splitter, but they did say that they could hear some like rattling rocks and things like that going through it and maybe some creaking. So we sent up the, the park geologist and another climbing ranger just to check it out. And the geologist was alarmed because it, the, the, he could hear the thing kind of shifting and cracking and little stones were coming through. So we, we, we have since then put a bunch of monitoring equipment up there and gone up there to measure it. And it has grown by another 20 feet since then and, and cracked below it. And uh, it's still active. There, it is still growing. There's a chance it'll never fall off and it'll stabilize and people will be able to, you know, climb the route, which is called supernatural. But uh, there's also high likelihood that that whole pillar of rock will will fall off. And uh, so, yeah, we, we have the area closed. It's an official closure and we don't usually do that or loose rock, things like that, because otherwise all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, well, we probably... We'd need to close the whole, all the, the, all the granite cliffs in Yosemite if we're doing that. But in, in general, it's a cool thing about the national park services that we're not out there uh, kind of deciding exactly what level of risk people can take. And, you know, Alex Honnold can free solo El Capitan. People are like, how is that legal? Well, it's the, the freedoms of the wilderness. So that's, you're going in there with what you need and if all you need is your chalk bag and your, your climbing shoes, <laughs> then, then I guess you can go for it. But yeah, to get back to the, the essence of that question. Yeah. In that, that kind of situation, having like a further amplification of our message, whether it's like helping to, to partner with our climbing steward, social media platform on Instagram and facelift or, uh, you know, helping us with uh, authoring articles and posting those up, um, things like that can really help uh, get those those messages of, of current events out there to the public. And another really good example of, of uh, really pressing for the public to be involved is our recent, we had our two-year pilot overnight big wall permit program for, for wilderness permits, which we really wanted the public to be involved and, and to, to feel empowered to, to uh, kind of give us their, their comments. And from the get-go, AAC was, came through and was a partner, a positive partner. They weren't being reactive, like, no, Park Service, don't do this. It was more like, why are you doing this? What are the issues that are involved? What what are you trying to mitigate? You know, like what what stewardship problems are there out there? And and then kind of encouraging us and challenging us to look at ways that maintain access in the greatest possible way for the the biggest group, you know. So if you have high fees, then you're cutting out a lot of the lower income climbers, which, you know, a lot of climbers in their twenties and stuff are, are living paycheck to paycheck. And I, I remember I, I was that way myself when I was younger and, uh, yeah, it might not seem like a $30 wilderness permit would be a big deal, but if you, you know, compound that on to a lot of other things and, uh, it could be even higher than that. You know, I know Denali, if you, get a permit up there it's way higher you know it's getting into the four digit range once once it's all said and done so we want want it to be accessible in that way and uh, we also wanted people to be able to like start their climbs when they wanted to 
and not have to not be able to do their climbs because they had to go through the permit process because that would take up their time. So AAC really pushed for that. And they also uh, pushed for trying to figure out some ways to, to you know, further enable a climber's expedition, um, hoping for, for better com- camping op- options that go along with the, uh, the permit. And now we have a, uh, a no-quota self-registration fee list program that is working really well and uh it's climbers are mostly compliant they're they're getting the permits and uh we're already seeing a lot of positive strides on 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 the ground in terms of what the wilderness is looking like in terms of fire rings and wind shelters and caches and things like that they're um they're not near as prevalent as they were a few years ago yeah yeah so actually that was uh let's back up for a second and and answer that question i think a lot of people are familiar okay. maybe behind, with the story behind the big wall permit but yeah tell me a bit about like what brought up the necessity of the new permit system like what problem were you seeing that you were hoping to fix with the system yeah so it, it's it's a combo of the problems we're seeing and then the problems we're not seeing going away so there's a few new problems but there's also the history of it all, you know, that climbing when California's Wilderness Act went into place and even before that backpackers were required to have permits and climbers who were doing overnight night climbs were not. And there were two reasons for that. One is, you know, you get a wilderness permit when things are too crowded. So there, there wasn't that best disperse the use. That's one reason you get a wilderness permit. And then uh, you also get a wilderness permit if there's heavy impacts. So LCAP and Half Dome and Washington Column and Leaning Tower and other big walls in Yosemite. In general, like you get up to a climb and there's a bunch of parties in front of you, you're probably not going to want to do that climb because there's just not enough ledges, there's not enough space, and it's not going to be a great experience. So what we found is there was already a lot of um, dispersal on wall routes but so the crowding wasn't, it wasn't our primary issue, but we were having a lot of like human waste issues for a while. People still dropping brown bags or are actually just dropping their wag bags, leaving litter on ledges, water bottles, pee bottles, even just general litter this, this left on, on various ledges on the walls, fixed ropes that, that, uh, free climbers were we're establishing or our, our um, persistentionists were establishing and then abandoning. So they get kind of too dangerous even to clean up because they get so ratty. And then uh, um, in more recent years, in the last like 10 years ago or, or so, a big issue has been like the uh, top down free climbing rehearsal, you know? So you're trying to, to work your project and you hike up to the top of El Cap, mostly El Cap are fixed ropes all the way up uh, Leaning Tower, for example, to make it easier to, to access. And you leave a ton of stuff up there and uh, are you, you leave your lines fixed on, on the South A wall and are you, you know, you leave your, your cash up at the top so you have easier access. And just like all of that together, the cumulative effect was degrading uh, the wilderness. And, and this still happens. There's still things like that that are happening. We had some climbers just recently, they were doing push on the South A wall and uh, they get up to the head wall and somebody had from the top fixed, you know, a thousand feet of rope all the way down that included, you know, directional placements in the South A head wall crack. 
And so you're coming up there, and this is the first time that mm. that party had done a in a day ascent of the South A Wall, and it's a experience of a lifetime for them. But then they're confronted with that, and they have anger, and they have like a feeling of like this is changing my experience. These ropes are in my way. They're, you know, instead of having this experience 2,000 feet off the ground where you you're not aware of of other other things out there you you just have this this rope dangling right next to you which is not the wilderness experience that a lot of people are coming here to have and so we're we're trying to like both educate climbers on what to be aware of other climbers um to be considerate i guess is the primary word i would like to to put out there but then those those caches a lot of times if they're left too long they start to break down and we see like microplastic from water bottles and ropes and other other things and people don't put their food in a bear canister and and it's not just the bears that might get into it ravens and and mice and squirrels will get into it as well and it starts scattering little bits of microplastic and trash everywhere so even the best intention of leaving a cache all bundled up often turns into something that is abandoned or gets wet and ruined. Um, we've, we've cleared brand new haul bags and ropes and racks that the racks all rusty and moldy and the rope, same deal, is all covered in mildew and stuff. So this ruined equipment and often those are sponsored climbers even that uh, they're leaving up there because they want to have the easy access to try to, to get down to changing corners on the nose to work that pitch for the 40th time and and still not succeed <laughs> and uh, that was a lot of the impetus that the combo of of some of the conditions that we're seeing on the wall on the base of the walls um, whether or not people were having fire rings which you know leave leave mark or are uh, you know thinking about micro trash and water bottles as trash things like that there's there's a lot of different things we're trying to mitigate and for years and years we had gone with education only approach where we're we're trying to um, reach everybody through the climber coffee through ask a climber through gym to crack events through any kind of social media postings but a lot of people aren't interested in that and so this is a way where it's like almost like a contractual obligation to these are the regulations of, of yosemite all of them are backed up by leave no trace ethics many of those ethics were first enacted upon by by climbers you know packing out human waste was started by climbers before we required it and so anyway that that set of of regulations is now a signed agreement it, they were they were the regulations before the permit and they still are but this way we feel like we have a lot more accountability and some people just didn't know that those are the rules you know they people wouldn't realize that you can't build a, a fire on top of El Cap. You know, that they might say, hey, it's all granite. What's what's there to disturb? And the problem is, is on top of like a, a dome like El Cap, there's not much wood. And there are some, some rare plants up there. And there is a need to regenerate soil. So we need any of the wood that's up there to uh, decompose and create new so soils. And the other thing is, you know, there's a few... 3,000 plus year old junipers up there. There's a, a tree that everybody calls the tree of life up there. And, and uh, one year I got up there and, and there was a new fire ring that was built right at the base. 
and somebody had had uh, sawed off or cut off, broke off a uh, one of those dead branches for firewood, and it wouldn't even burn because it's you know it's two thousand years old and almost like petrified wood up there. But you know, taking taking something that a lot of people think is like the spirit of of Yosemite and the essence of like what makes the top of El Cap so sacred and so we've put that as a, a you know another way to teach people like hey yeah if you have an absolute emergency and you're you're hypothermic everybody's going to understand if you have a fire but um, a fire just to have a fire to celebrate one we have you know huge destructive forest fires and but two like it's a, a way that we can continue to preserve that natural ecosystem up there and and continue to have good healthy habitat for Mount Lyle salamanders, which are an endangered mountain species here in, in Yosemite. And when you, people are moving rocks around to, to uh, build a wind shelter or, um, or um, a fire circle, that can inadvertently um, impact that habitat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's the story of why we wanted the permits and uh, why we want, wanted to try them out. And we started off with the pilot and big problem that a lot of people had with the pilot is that you had to have get the permit in person and and since we have limited staff we you know we have to have like an eight to five permit window and a lot of folks told us that our stated objective was not to prevent anybody from climbing a wall by having a permit you know we wanted to continue to have free unfettered access to, to wilderness and and that since we weren't dealing with crowding we didn't have a quota and uh, we, a lot of climbers and the American Alpine Club brought this up too, Access Fund brought this up, is that we were, by by having that rule that uh, we we were unintentionally kind of preventing people from being able to get that Alpine start and start their, their walls early because they had to wait until eight o'clock. And then by the time they got the permit and get out to their parking area and get up to the wall, all of a sudden it's, it's 11 o'clock at, at best. It's already really hot. And you get up there and you're just not making your benchmark times as much as you need. And so they would not be able to do the wall that they intended to. It doesn't seem like it would be a big deal, but that half day for a lot of folks, it was the difference between like being able to do a four day or three day route and and not being able to do it and having to change their, their objective. But, uh, and I I should say there is, we are seeing crowding on a couple of routes that the nose of Velcap. And uh, South Face of Washington column, sometimes some other routes as well. And one of our goals in the next couple of years is to to have a updated updated on our web page uh, a list of like what the current use is on a lot of those most popular walls, so people can jump on there and be like, oh, you know, there's already five parties in the last two days on the nose. I'm going to plan for another wall. Give them some extra information that way, and so and they also can disperse themselves, which is a, a win for everybody's wilderness experience for overuse of, of certain walls and and uh, helps people plan adequately for their own success on the wall and, and increases safety too, because the more crowded it is, the more chance of a, an accident, of course, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for that background. And so earlier you were saying you've seen already a lot of improvement of, of those initial problems that originally caused the idea. Yeah, absolutely. And that I've, you know, myself and the climbing rangers have done big cleanups on El Cap uh, almost every year in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And whether that's cleaning up 
camp six on the nose route, you know, like actually on the face or, or the alcove of the, the South Bay wall are more often just the top and, and, uh, you know, abandoned ropes or ropes that people attend, intend to use later on that have gotten ratty. But we've, you know, a lot of those cleanups, we have four haul bags, huge haul bags full of ropes and other gear and abandoned property and stuff like that. And this year we did a small cleanup, but it was mostly just some discarded water bottles. And this fall, right before the facelift, I went up there to, to see if we needed to do a cleanup of the top as in conjunction with with facelift, I didn't see a single new uh, uh, firing pop up. You know, nothing that we had restored from the previous year popped up. Even the the wind shelters, which is a lot of climbers think is is a necessary thing to do, but there, there's enough cave space and enough other ways to to mitigate winds. I mean, people were just up on the face of El Cap <laughs> doing a, a route for four days. Winds up there just fine without building a rock wall. So I think it's okay to not have a rock wall on top of El Cap and, and have a, a warm sleeping bag and find natural barriers. And none of that had, we didn't, I didn't see any new uh, wind shelter rock formations being built. The only thing that was up there was a few uh, water bottles, which is still something that we're continuing to try to like educate climbers like, hey, bring what you need, carry down what you didn't use. I know you're trying to help out other climbers, but it is, it's only a, you know, an hour and a half from the top of El Cap down to the base there is a there most of the year there's a spring off to the to the east of el cap a little ways so if you look on your your map most everybody has like gaia apps and other apps up there to to see where they could get water so we're, we're really trying to to get people even away from the caching uh, or the the leaving of water to help out other climbers if somebody knows that they're going to be using something and they go up and they leave a tagged water that says please do do not remove you know wanting to use by october 2nd and has a name on it that's great i as i would prefer people not to do that but we're not going to touch that and uh we're not going to remove it so people if people really want to have like a cache of water and they they think that it's it's critical to their success and they want to hike it up there and they label it properly. We'll leave it if it's properly labeled and dated. But yeah, that it was pretty amazing to get up there and see. Yeah, that sounds so awesome. I'm really glad to hear that it's been successful so far. Um, I also was wondering, so specific to, you know, this question of like going top down to rehearse and going ground up is a very interesting one, not only for the sake of stewardship and stuff, but it also is an interesting question of like, ethics and style and like kind of harkening back right. to like the purity of big wall climbing and so i'm interested have you seen that conversation shift as well yes we're we're seeing it shift right now and i think so and the american alpine club and park service and yosemite conservancy are, are all partnering up right now as and i think it's another part of like leveraging our agreement for uh, a common good we're partnering up right now to explore that question on ground up big wall free climbing ethics and style and uh so we're we're starting a film the process of creating a film um that we hope will be available by the uh american alpine club spring gala dinner do you guys call it the dinner or what what's the actual title for it annual gathering i think is okay what we're with now. so we're hoping yeah so we're hoping that it'll 
be able, we can release it by the annual gathering and maybe have, have it um, open there and uh, have a viewing of the, the film as part of the gathering or the dinner. And uh, the, the general premise of it is to explore that idea of like what it means to and how you prepare for a ground up attempt on a free climb, big wall free climb on El Cap instead of thinking like, okay, I'm going to need to rehearse everything from the top. And, and then once everything is totally dialed and I'm going to leave a couple of caches on the way to make it just perfect for me that you're going to come and you're going to try the route from the ground to the top. And you're not going to be as concerned about whether or not you send. If you don't send, you just did all the routes and you trained hard and, and art and you did all the pitches and you, you figured out where your problem areas are and you're going to work on that aspect of your climbing outside of it instead of changing your experience to making it more of like a, a, a sport climbing experience. And, and yeah, it is all, it's kind of tricky because we're, we're, we don't police style and we, I never want to, but because in this circumstance, the ground up ethic doesn't involve fixed ropes, doesn't involve caches, doesn't involve like wrapping down in and changing other people's experience. There's, there's actually an overlap of what can be considered style and what can be considered more along the lines of our, you know, wilderness preservation and, and maintaining the wilderness character, which is both an experience for, for other climbers, but also wilderness, uh, you know, healthy wilderness character means like a, a healthy um, ecosystem as well. And, and so we believe there's, there's a, a lot of overlap between pushing for folks, whether you're egg climbing or wall climbing, um, that pure ethic of going to the bottom with all your stuff and starting your route instead of going up and fixing and having like several laps to try to get all your kit up there. And you end up spending more time up there. There's, there's more of a, a, a time period when you might have fixed lines. Even if you're, if you're up on the North America wall, for example, and you fix the first five pitches and then another party wants to come and do their ground up of uh, El Nino or, or the North American wall. And they all of a sudden they have all those lines that are right there, totally changing that, their experience and, and uh, maybe pushing them to do, displacing them to do something else. So yeah, I, I think uh, both changing the conversation of what, what is the best style and what deserves the most props and uh change the conversation of like hey let's let's make sure that we're having the maximum maximum consideration for other climbers and and uh and just the the wilderness character in general yeah that's so interesting i i'm excited that the film's going to come out i'm going to let us leave the conversation there so that the film can like really go into the nuances of that oh yeah yeah i also just wanted to ask about maybe some other challenges that come up when you're thinking about climbing access and um managing climbers in Yosemite some ideas might be yeah parking camping <laughs> or, you know right yeah for sure and uh I think one it's interesting because um you know Joshua Tree I go down there to Joshua Tree and there are it feels so much more crowded as a climbing area than Yosemite does in a lot of ways like there's there's so many social trails and climbers all over the place and and uh I've, I've wondered like what is it that draws more people there and I, I actually think it's it's more 
that there's there's a greater amount of camping access in Jade Tree for climbers than there is in Yosemite. It's it's just easier to 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 get there and camp than it is here, and easier to camp close to the the, the climbing. And so that's for better or for worse. the the better part of that is like because there's such you know such a competition for access with all the other users here in Yosemite that it's harder to camp here and uh you know our stay limits are are maybe a little bit more strict i I actually can't speak to that compared to joshua tree but it just has created uh, a little bit of a a barrier to climbing here in yosemite or a big barrier according to a lot of climbers and i mean the good thing about that is that we don't have as much climbing use and our trails aren't hit up as as hard and you know crowding hasn't become quite as much of a, a problem if it was easier to, to, to spend time here. But on the flip side of that is a lot of people choose not to come here to Yosemite to climb when there, there is a lot of, of, of actual like good space and good, good opportunity for, for more climbers to be here and more climbers to learn from the Yosemite tradition of both from a, a climber aspect or, you know, a climber um, point of view of, of, you know, all these historic roots and this is the birth birthplace of of uh really the traditional like multi-pitch climbing in yosemite all the all the equipment that people use from camming devices to gmars to some of the different styles and methods of, of climbing that go all the way back to the the 20s and 30s and the sierra club outings here in, in yosemite but yeah so that the difficulty of getting into the park to find camping. Um, every night when I come home from work, I live in El Portal, right, right at the west side of, of Yosemite. And so I have to you know, drive out of the park to get home. I live like a mile outside of the gate. And I pass by what we refer to as, as uh, you know, Camp 5 or, or um, Camp 6. I can't remember what different people talk about it as. But right at the park line, there's about 80 cars. Most, a lot of them like climber vans and they're just all like parked right there. As soon as the, the rangers aren't going to be bothering them and waking them up and telling them they can't camp there, they have figured out like, okay, this is the spot where we won't get hassled and we're going to be able to spend the night here. And it tells me some, that there's a broken system because there's not a bathroom there. The river is right there. They, people are going to the bathroom right there on the the, the river banks. I've, I've driven by in the morning, first thing in the morning, and looked over to the river, expecting to see rapids, and I see you know like some like you know a couple moons, <laughs> not not the not the full moon that you want to see, <laughs> you know people standing up with their their pants at their at their knees and in the process of wiping their butts, and you're like okay. That's a problem and right down there by the river. And, but there's no bathroom and people got to go. I mean, you can't, not going to go in, but you know, maybe wag bags is an answer or maybe another uh, toilet there. But I do see not just for climbers, but for other users, um, there, there needs to be, or we should look for, for ways to have more, more camping available in uh, Yosemite Valley or uh, potentially private property options whether it's up at Yosemite West or Foresta. I know there's a lot of a lot of competing interests in those places, and there's a lot of uh, red tape, both from permitting to what's allowed from, from a water standpoint or, or from a use standpoint 
but I, I do think it's a that's a good cause to try to continue to to seek out other options. Specifically, you know, I, I deal with climate management and climbers, so I'm thinking about climbers, but it's it's a little harder harder to be exclusive to, to climbers, especially if it's a if it's a park campground. But if it's private a private property entity or or something more along the lines of, of uh, what they have in the Tetons, the climbers ranch there, that kind of thing could really help some climbers. It's it's still there's still going to be a capacity there, um, and it's still going to be kind of trying to find that balance between not having overcrowding in Yosemite Valley or different parts of Yosemite, and providing more access for for climbers. But even you know even Camp Four, which has traditionally been a, a climber campground, that it's not maybe used as much. It's not used as much by climbers as it was once. And part of that is because of like the bureaucracy and how much it costs for, for camping um, and what your stay limits are and having to, to navigate recreation.gov where it, is, it used to be all walk up. But a lot of Camp 4 is still a walk up self-registration campground in outside of the central season. If you look at the, the dates, usually by think already it is um, self-registration and first come first serve right there at the campground and still most climbers aren't using it and i bet you you can guess why <laughs> where do climbers like to sleep these days in their vans <laughs> right exactly in their vans or in their cars so camp four is a walking campground and climbers rock climbers these days and this has changed in my life in the last 15 to 20 years tremendously it for some reason they do not want to to get other car and walk over to a campsite they might be even sharing with strangers and <laughs> and sleep there and uh so i would say that actually is the biggest reason why climbers aren't using camp four as much as they used to is because they their preference has changed uh, maybe their preference isn't the right word i bet you 20 years ago, people would have loved to sleep in their vans too. I, I would say maybe their, their tolerance has changed towards uh, sleeping in their tent in that kind of group group site environment. Even though Camp 4 20 years ago was much more rowdy, much louder, a lot more parties. It's a lot quieter these days because the culture has changed a little bit too. So I I do think there needs to be maybe um, if you're wanting to utilize that campground, there needs to be more of a willingness to to pull out all your food and put it in the bear lockers and go use use a tent and not sleep over there. But a lot of people decide instead of doing that, even if there's open camping, to drive all the way down to Park Line and back, which is actually more expensive just in gas than it would be to spend the night at Camp Four, which is kind of a funny thing. So yeah, I, I guess that's that's another yeah. part of the conversation. And it's a it would be a funny little campaign, like you know. Try to do a camping trip or a climbing trip without your car. You know, a lot of European climbers, a lot of them still come out here, or South American climbers come out here and they stay in Camp 4 and they don't have a car the whole time. And they, you know, use the public transport and go on a shuttle bus down to El Cap and vice versa or hitchhike. And uh, in some ways, it's, it's probably pretty liberating. Yeah, that sounds really fun. I, I definitely am for it. Let's like, you know, <laughs> revive Camp Four in the way it used to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's. It, it's just an interesting little side conversation. But I know if you talk to climbers, which I hope 
you do. I hope the American Alpine Club does. And if you question them about what is it about Yosemite, what's what's the biggest thing that you would change? I, I'm almost sure if it wasn't the number one thing, it would be in the top three that camping access would be their their number one issue. I don't think it would be like, ah, oh, get rid of the, the big wall permits. I think people are like, okay, that's not that big of a deal. But yeah, from their point of view, it would be uh, camping access. And then I'd, I'd say after that, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, that's probably going to be their, their number one issue. There, there's probably a lot of other issues that are lower down, but I'm less aware of, of what those would be. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the the insight and those tidbits. We are, I'm sure, I think we could keep talking for another hour. There's so many details yeah. we get into, but uh, just to save your time, because I know you have to go into the park today, let's just wrap up with um, kind of looking forward to the upcoming climbing season. Did anything happen this spring that you want people to know about? And then maybe a fun one, like what are some under the radar classics that people should keep in mind when they're trying to avoid the crowds? Those are, those are great questions. So things that are happening here in Yosemite that people should learn about. Well, one thing that was maybe a little off the radar from uh, last summer, and it's a funny tidbit, is there was the first in a day nose, naked and shoeless nose ascent, which might be one of the most impressive. Yes. (laughs) Barefoot. Barefoot and naked. I think they had cock bags. I'm sure they did. (laughs) But a naiad nose in a day, naked and barefoot, which at first you're like, oh, that is just a total stunt, you know, like, but if you think about it, it is an an insane, amazing feat <laughs> to, to do that. And everybody talks about how much like shoes have improved over the last, you know, 60 years and that's revolutionized climbing. But that pretty much kills that argument completely people are doing it without shoes because your your feet have uh have they have not evolved and, and probably in a lot of ways they've devolved so i, I for some reason i think that is actually a, a proud ascent i they they didn't really try to get a lot of uh media or publication so it was less of a stunt and more of like a, a you know personal goal of those couple mm-hmm. climbers and it kind of you know distills the wilderness experience going out there with with nothing but they did have gear they 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 weren't free soloing (laughs) that's one thing um and then you know this upcoming season i've heard uh tommy caldwell is going to be back here and uh he he we we work with him alongside of edelred and who he he's one of the uh part owners of edelred north america and uh he has been really helpful in, in helping to message a lot of our stewardship message and everything else. And he is also going to be attempting a, uh, a ground up um, free ascent, I think, of the mirror wall, which is it's funny because we didn't we didn't put him up to it. But so getting back to like, OK, yes, this is actually in the conversation outside of the park service and, you know, the wilderness preservation climbing ranger folks that the climbing community is recognizing like, Hey, this is the most badass way to, to climb big walls. You bring yourself to the base and you start climbing. And, uh, if you're a free climber, you train hard and you use all of the experience that you've had on the thousands of other pitches you've done 
to try to on-site things are, um, you know, if you've already done those pitches to, to not re-rehearse them and, and just go from the ground to the top and, and see what happens. So that's, that's exciting. And then what was the other part of your, that question? What are some under the radar classics that folks should keep in mind when they're trying to avoid crowd? Oh, right on. Okay. So, so one thing people love the central pillar of frenzy. It's a, it's an awesome climb. It's, but it gets really crowded, pretty popular, and it can get to be a little bit of a junk show because of the the wrap route and how how it interacts with the with the the route up. And often you get up there and it's really crowded. Just to the left, a little ways away, is the Corbeck route. I've always thought that it would become like a popular route, and it's gotten some notoriety over the last several years. But it's five or six pitches if you just do part that most people do. And it's about the same difficulty. Five nine is a little harder than central pillar, but that that's one that that people should really uh, look at. And then the uh, West Gully of El Capitan is an all-time wilderness adventure. It does have some fifth-class terrain, so it's a good idea to bring a rope. But it has a spring midway up, and you do you know 3,200 feet of elevation gain the whole way. Is looking at the west face of El Cap. You can get up on top of El Cap and bring, you know, bring your your harness, of course, because you're going to use that on the way up. But you can wrap down the east ledges and and uh, get up um, El Cap that way in the a full adventure method. So that that's the El Cap Gully, or other people call it the the West Gully. And then I would say, from a, a wall perspective and free climbing, both things up in um, in the Ribbon Falls Amphitheater, there's several. Really amazing uh, free climbs for for folks that are in the 511, 512 range, Gates of Delirium and, and others over there. And then there's the, the Gold Wall Silent Line is a classic wall route over there that it has some incredible adventure and a, and a really incredible hand crack pitch. And uh, yeah, so that's one of those spots that you're rarely going to see folks. And if pe- a lot of people will listen to this this podcast and they're like, all of a sudden, it's really crowded up there. Mia culpa. We'll, we'll find some other spots that that are uh, are uh, less climbed, and I could go on. There's there's a bunch of others, but but folks would be like Jesse, don't give all don't give all of them away. But yeah, there's coming out to Yosemite. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of ten pitch or longer routes that are amazing. Live up to all the hype. You know, even the East Buttress of of Middle Cathedral is a one of the 50 crowded classics they call it and if you come here in the summertime you can get up on it and a lot of the day it's in the shade and there won't be anybody up there or one or other one or two other parties so even the ones that climbs that you think are crowded if you come here at the right time of year you'll you have a good chance of being alone on those routes so i encourage everybody to come out and if you do come out come come see us at the climbing office um we'll have our office hours the climbing rangers are always there to give you a wag bag if you need one or, or give you some beta on a route or tell you about route conditions, whether it's what, how the spring is at the base of half dome or, uh, you know, what the status of the, the east ledges, fixed lines or heart ledges, fixed lines, things like that. And we're right there by the um, Yosemite Indian Museum next to the visitor center. And uh, we'll, we have a open, open office hours four or five days a week in the spring and fall during high season. That is awesome. Thank you so much for your time and insights today. I hope you have a great 
fall season and I'm really looking forward for the AAC to continue working with uh, really, really closely, like extra closely with Yosemite and the climbing rangers. Thanks, Hannah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. Lots of good stuff to come. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. And of course, we'd love to give a big shout out to our presenting sponsor, Adidas Terex, and our supporting sponsor, Outdoor Research. Support Yosemite Climbing by supporting the AAC. Become a member or renew your membership today at AmericanAlpineClub.org slash learn more.